We start uh, in sort of a strange place this morning. We don't start with a baby in a manger, but we start way before that. We're beginning a series, our Christmas series here at New Heights that is entitled Unforgettable Christmas. And I just want to ask you a question as we start and as we think about Christmas's past in our, in our life. Can you think in your mind of an unforgettable Christmas that you once had? Anybody? Like you, don't have to, you don't have to tell me the story, but if you, if you remember like an unforgettable Christmas, just raise your hand. All right, great. Here's the thing that I think, though, most of the time, we have like maybe a memory, but honestly, I couldn't even tell you what I did during Christmas last year. That's how forgettable it is. And I think sometimes that happens because we get caught up in the hustle and bustle of everything else. And like, it's just insane to me. And it just happens every year that Christmas gets earlier and earlier. I think we just kind of get like Christmas fatigue in some form or fashion because, I mean, like it's not even Halloween yet. And Christmas lights are up in stores. And we're like, what is it? I'm so, we're so confused and backwards. We get caught up in all this hustle and bustle. And I, and I love that we get mad and we say, you know what? I am so mad when I go to Walmart and they do not tell me Merry Christmas. But we do the very same thing ourselves in the church, that we remove Christ from Christmas because we get so caught up on the wrong things about Christmas. And so this uh, series is an attempt for us to kind of focus back in and take a look at what happens in Christmas, what did happen the very first Christmas. And actually, this morning we talk about what happened way before the very first Christmas. I have admitted this before, but I'm a really bad gift giver. Uh, Crystal, is that true? True, she says. I, I have an inability to be patient and to wait when I get a gift, and I know it's a really good one, I'm like, oh, watch out what I'm about to do. I say, I can't wait. I've got to, I mean, I, I honestly don't know if I've ever been able to give a gift and wait until Christmas to give that gift. It always seems like it comes before that. We have an inability to be patient and wait. I don't think that's a secret to anybody, that we all share that in common as humanity, that we cannot do that. We cannot wait. We cannot be patient. I don't think there is any person who wakes up in the morning and asks God, you know what, God, just please make me more patient today. And even if we do say that, I think even few of us are even sincere about asking and that request of God. Make me more patient. I mean, we don't go to the license branch. We don't go to the doctor's office. We don't go to Kroger and just hope. Our wish beyond wishes is that we just have a chance to wait. Like, God, can you please just make insanely long lines today that I can just wait in? Please do that. I was, I, not only yesterday, but last Saturday, and this is when it hit me, it was last Saturday. We were at the high school. Uh, Brenna plays basketball. We were there watching her game, and I I cannot even count the number of times that I just got frustrated with people because they were just impatient. And then to, to combat that, I was very impatient. And I was trying to like, people, and I, this drives me insane. If you are standing and having a conversation, please do not do it right in the middle of the way. Move to the side of the room. Move to the side of the hallway. And I swear it seemed like everybody that day was just out to get me as they stood in the middle of the way. And here I am carrying Brylin and I'm like, here we go, battering ram, baby. This is what this thing's for. And I'm just clearing the way. I'm like, people have no sense to them. 
I go to the high school and it happens. I literally left the high school and I went to, the dollar, I went to Dollar General. I can't remember why we went there. And I went in, I, and I, this was like a super quick trip. And it was surprising because I had Brennan and Braden with me. I'm like, we got in here and we're getting out of here super quick until I get to the front. And what is the thing that happens wherever you go in a store? Everybody descends upon the checkout at one time. And guess what? There's only one person checking people out. And I'm like, all right, God, I got it. Got the clue. Got the hint. And so the other person comes up to open up the other register. I'm like, look at this. God, I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. I'm getting this. I'm going to be a really nice guy. I said, hey, guys, they just opened the register over there. So I'm like, I'm third in line. I'm being the nice guy. I could have just butted in line, been in, been out. So I'm letting people go. And I kid you not, I got behind the slowest person I have ever seen. Like he's, I don't even know what the guy was doing. He was pulling out coupons. He was counting cash. He was writing a check. I don't know what this boy was doing. But I'm like, oh, boy, God, yes, you've got me today. Patience. I'm about, about you. How many of you put up the Christmas tree even before Thanksgiving. Anybody in here do that? Just admit it, it's fine. So this year, for some odd reason, Crystal got the Christmas streak and she said, I'm putting this tree up before Thanksgiving even happened. Do you know what has almost happened every single day at our house now? The kids will come up and say, can we open the presents now? Can we so we were stupid. Not only did we put the tree up, but we actually wrapped presents, being really super prepared as parents, and put them under the tree. Never again. They ask every day, can we open up the presents? Can, no, they're actually not so selfish because they'll say, can we, can, we, can we wrap the presents now? We never wrap the presents so we can put them under the tree. Then we can unwrap them and open them. I'm like, oh, my land. We have no ability to wait. Even at a young age, we're conditioned and we're taught not to wait. Waiting is a direct challenge to our perceived need to have things Now. And really, our lack of patience is a clear sign that we see ourselves as the ruler of the roost. And everybody else that is around us is simply there to just serve our every need. The desire is fed by our culture of instant gratification. That's a culture that we live in. But it goes all the way back to the beginning of mankind. Adam and Eve were given everything. They had access to every single thing that they could ever imagine. In fact, in Genesis 1, 29 and 30, it tells us those very words. God says, look, and he uses this phrase, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. And if that wasn't enough, he says it again, I have given every green plant as food for the wild animals. But when Satan and when temptation with Satan entered creation, something broke in creation. And Adam and Eve just could not trust. And when they stopped trusting and they lost patience, they grew weary in their waiting. And this will sound very familiar in Genesis. Did God, did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden is what Satan says as a serpent. Of, co of course we may eat the fruit, just not the fruit from the tree at the center of the garden. If we touch that fruit, we will surely die. You won't die. Your eyes will actually be opened and you will know as God knows. You will see as God sees. You will become a God. And in that space, Adam and Eve's inability to wait and their lack of patience in all creation was put in wait mode. Because Adam and Eve could not wait, 
And I want to I'm actually I'm going to read in Genesis where it talks about what Adam and Eve did to respond to this temptation. Genesis 3, verse 6, it says, after Satan had tempted her and tempted her, it says, the woman was convinced, and she saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And listen to this, listen to this phrase, and she wanted. She wanted the wisdom that it would give her, so she took. Don't we often do that in life? Not just little kids, but as adults we do it too. We see, we want, we take. She took some of the fruit and she ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. And because of Adam and Eve's inability to wait and to be patient and to trust in God that he would give them anything that their hearts would desire, all of creation is put into wait mode until the Messiah would show up to rescue humanity from itself. There is hope, guys, in this moment. Even in the fall, even in humanity's darkest moment, there is hope. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, continuing to read there is what it says about what happened. It says to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. I love that word, by the way, groveling. That's just a fun word to say. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That phrase, he will strike your head. Guess who that is? That's Jesus. All the way back in Genesis chapter three, the story has already started. The gospel is already in motion at the point of humanity's darkest moment. You see, guys, here's the thing that we often think with this baby Jesus that shows up in Bethlehem and is born, that that's where the gospel starts. The gospel doesn't start. The coming of Jesus is not the beginning of the gospel story. It's simply the continuation of the story. It's just the next chapter in the story of the gospel. The Old Testament and the New Testament are not two different books about two different subjects. They are two parts of the same story. In fact, as Mark Deaver puts it, the Old Testament, I love how he puts this, the Old Testament is all about promises made. You go back and you look how many promises God makes in the Old Testament to people that this will happen, this will come, this will be. The New Testament is all about promises kept. God fulfills all of these prophecies and these promises that he has made. And all of these promises made and kept are part of what we call the good news of the gospel. The gospel story did not begin with Jesus' birth, but it was set in motion long before that. In Jesus, the gospel is embodied and is explained. Jesus is the unique fulfillment of the gospel, but the gospel is there in all of Scripture, every last bit of it. And upon the fall of creation, because Adam and Eve could not wait, they couldn't demonstrate faith, they couldn't demonstrate patience and trust, waiting became a way of life. I mean, think about the stories in just the Old Testament themselves. Noah. Noah had to be patient, and he had to wait for likely anywhere between 55 and 75 years as he built this ark, though no one had seen a drop of water fall from the sky to that point. Abraham had to wait before Isaac was given to him, 100 years to be exact. Joseph, wrongly accused and imprisoned, you guessed it, what did he do? He waited. 
He waited for redemption that wouldn't come for several years. And here's the kicker of all of it. Just look at the whole nation of Israel. The Israelites waited 400 years to be freed from Pharaoh's grasp in Egypt. And you know what the really like ironic twist and funny thing about that is? They wait 400 years and God frees them. And what do they have to do? They have to wait 40 more years wandering around the desert before they experience the promised land of Canaan. And in each of these individual stories is the greater story of creation's wait for a Messiah to correct its brokenness. 700 years before Christ. And guys, that sounds like an insanely long time. But the wait has been going on much longer than that, as we've already seen since Genesis chapter 3. The prophet Isaiah speaks into this anticipation And this longing, I want to read several passages from Isaiah as he sets up the coming of this Messiah, the promise of a Messiah. Can you bring up that scripture, please, Steve? Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. People who contradict the word and contradict his word are completely in the dark. I just want to stop right there and say this. This is where everything is going today. Do we realize that in Christmas, the reason Jesus has to be sent is because of this. We are just people who walk around in the dark until we come to Jesus. Isaiah continues, wherever they look, there is trouble and anguish and dark despair. Nevertheless, I I love little words in the Bible like that, just little phrases that we would pass over, but nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. Here it comes. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and his peace will never end. And then he comes and says more here in Isaiah 9. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. I don't want you to miss that phrase. The passionate commitment of the Lord will make all of this happen. God the Lord created the heavens and stretched them out. He created the earth and everything in it. He gives breath to everyone, life to everyone who walks on the earth, and it is he who says, I, the Lord, have called you to demonstrate my righteousness. I will take you by the hand and guard you, and I will give you to my people Israel as a symbol of my covenant with them. And you, listen to this, you will be a light to guide the nations. But after Isaiah speaks these words, five years pass, no Messiah. Ten years pass, no Messiah. One hundred years pass, no Messiah. Five hundred years pass, no Messiah. And you can imagine what happens in the waiting. Anticipation wanes. Longing ceases. Life goes on as usual. I mean, it's like taking a road trip and hearing the classic question. What's a classic question on a road trip? 
are we there yet? And in much the same way, the Israelites asked the very same question. And on a much grander scale, all of creation asked the same question today. When? When will all of this happen? Are we there yet? And here's the thing that we need to realize. Jesus came as a baby, but guys, he is coming again. And our anticipation is for that moment. Because I think sometimes we come to Christmas and we say, I've heard this story before. We know a baby comes. He's going to save the world. That, that has already happened for a people that it was promised to. And we say, what in the world do we have to look forward to? I mean, that's a great thing, and it results in a great thing for us. But it's just kind of hard to connect to that. But it's not very hard to connect at all to the fact that Jesus is coming for a second time to take all of his people with him. And we ask ourselves, when? I mean, it's like someone sitting and waiting in the darkness for the sun to rise, but it never does. Until one night, a quiet, unassuming night, a night like every other, everything changes. Luke chapter 2 tells us a story that, as far as I'm concerned, never gets old. Says starting in verse Eight, that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. And suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them. And the, catch this, we've talked a lot about light already this morning. It says, the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded the angels. And the shepherds were terrified. But the angels reassured them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior Yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you can imagine the natural reaction of these shepherds. Okay. I mean, really, this is what we've been told for 700 years. This is what we've been told for thousands of years now, that the Messiah is going to come. But there was something about that moment, and I would believe it would have to do with a whole lot of angels in the middle of a field where nobody ever is, that would get your attention. And let you know that this is very different. This night is very different. Verse 15 tells us, When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And then verse 17, After seeing the baby, after going there and physically seeing the baby, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. And it says in verse 20, the shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and all they had seen. It was just as the angel had told them. I mean, these were guys that were naturally not the life of the party. I mean, they didn't like necessarily go up to everybody and just talk to them about things. They were shunned. They were outcast. And I could just see the picture of these dirty, smelly, nasty, don't even come into society guys who are running through the streets telling everybody that they can that the Messiah is here. He has come. And again, like I said, I think it's hard for us to connect with that kind of longing and celebration and anticipation. Sometimes I think it's difficult for us to see Christmas or approach Christmas with anything but cynical and skeptical and clouded eyes because, again, we've, we've already been there before. We've heard this story how many times in our life? 
But guys, again, it should not be a hard connection for we experience the very same weight in our lives. And we should have the very same longing and anticipation because Christ is coming again. Christ's second coming is kind of like what I think of as incarnation, the sequel. Only this time he's not coming as a tender baby, but he's coming as a reigning and a ruling king. This Christmas, we wait. Every single one of us in this room waits for something, not for a baby in a manger, but we have our minds and our hearts set on something greater than fake snow and hot cocoa or even the best gift that you could ever imagine, the most unforgettable Christmas that you could ever imagine because our deliverer is coming again. And here is what I want to communicate in a very crystal clear way this morning. Guys, we may not like the way. I don't know this morning what in the world you're waiting on. I don't know if it's a job situation. I don't know if it's a weight that you have in a relationship. I don't know if it's a weight for your kids to stop giving you fits. Whatever it may be, most of us in here are waiting on something. Just wishing and hoping and praying that we'll just hurry up and get here. But here is the truth that we need this morning and all of that. And I want you to hear this. God is working in the waiting. God is working in the waiting. But here is a further encouragement and truth that I believe we all need to hear. Is that waiting produces something in us. Every time we're called by God to wait on something, to wait in something, to wait for something to happen, God is taking and producing something in us that we can not see. And in God's sovereignty, he takes our waiting and he redeems every bit of it to produce fruit in us. He wastes no good opportunity. God is always going to seize a moment to make us more like Jesus. And I believe that there are several things God does in periods of waiting and longing and anticipation this morning. I just want to give a few of those things that Scripture tells us that we know in our own lives happen when we are in a period of waiting, a holding pattern, if you will. The first thing this morning that I want to observe is that in our waiting, God strengthens us. He strengthens us. What does Isaiah 40 verse 31 say? But those who trust in the Lord, who wait on the Lord, who are patient in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. Let me ask you this question. How many of you have ever gone on a vacation and you've come back from that vacation and you're more exhausted than you were before you went on the vacation? It seems that happens so many times. I mean, we're there, and we're like in day one, two, three, we're like relaxing, relaxing. We're, oh, this is enjoyable. But by the end of that, we're back to like stress mode, anxiety mode, and we come back, we're like, why in the world am I more exhausted than I ever was before? And the fact of the matter is, in that little small moment, we realize that only God is the giver of true strength. God is the taker of all weariness, in our life. And as we wait, guys, God strengthens. Not only does God strengthen, but in our waiting, God is providing. Providing every single thing that you need, not want, not desire, but what you need. Psalm 33 says it this way. We put our hope in the Lord. He is our help. He is our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. 
Let your unfailing love surround us, Lord, for our hope is in you alone. Guys, our inability to wait usually stems from a lack of control over any given situation. But truth be told, we know this. We have control over very little in our life anyways. Instead, every single moment of our days, we are sustained and protected and upheld by a strong and infinitely competent and capable God. I think one of the most fascinating things that happens in our waiting is that in our waiting, God is working his plan for us and he is working his plan in us. Psalm 62 verses 1 and 2 very famously say this, I wait quietly, patiently before God for my victory comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation my fortress where I will never be shaken. Guys, God's greatest plan, and don't mistake this, this is God's total and ultimate plan is to redeem his people. He starts that plan early in scripture and particularly in the book of Exodus as he seeks to rescue his people from Pharaoh. But even in the midst of that rescue mission, Israel complains and ungrateful impatience takes over. I'm not going to read the entire story, but I would encourage you to look at Exodus 15 and 16. Moses has just sung a song of deliverance that God has intervened on their behalf. In his might, he has rescued them. I mean, they are at the high point of their time as a nation. And literally right on the heels of that, the Israelites start to grumble and complain and moan and whine. We don't have anything to drink. God says, here you go, here's something to drink. A few verses later, we don't have anything to eat. God gives them something to eat. Guys, this is right on the heels of Moses singing that God has delivered us. But often, guys, we do the very same things, don't we? God has blessed us immensely, and all we can do is sit and complain because God didn't do it how we wanted him to do it. We didn't do it as fast as we wanted him to do it. We don't think like God thinks. We don't see as God sees. His ways are not like ours, and we always want him to work quicker or more like we would. But God calls us to quiet patience that knows that he is working perfectly in our waiting. Guys, it's hard incredibly hard, but it demonstrates the trust that God is after in our lives. A trust that endures when we can't see clearly, when our perspective is clouded, as the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, when we can't trace God's hand, we must trust his heart. God allows us to wait, but he always brings a resolution to his promises, and the greatest Yes, that God ever gave. The greatest resolution that God ever made was sending his his son, Jesus Christ. For thousands of years and through countless prophets, God had been working a plan to uh, bring creation back to him. We read in Luke what happens when the angels show up and they tell the shepherds what has happened. This marvelous thing that has happened in the Christ child. But John gives us a behind-the-scenes look at what took place in the coming of the Word. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 1 is such an important text, an important section for us to read about Christmas. 
And starting in John 1, very first verse, John starts to lay it on us. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, through the word, through Jesus Christ. And nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Verse nine. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone was coming into the world came into the world that he created, but the world did not recognize him. He came to his own people, Israel, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. And then verse 14 is such a crucial and important verse. I would literally take, and if your your Bible doesn't have it circled, just circle it, underline it, point arrows to it, because this is the moment right here when everything changes. So the word became human, and he made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. And then I love verses 16 through 18, which we don't read more more often than not when we read John chapter 1, but they're so very important connecting to the rest of it. From his abundance, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. In 1 Kings 8.27, Solomon asks this simple but profound question as he dedicates the temple. He asks, will God really live on earth? That's a big question. And that question is answered with a resounding yes in John's opening to his account of Jesus' life and ministry. You see, God had dwelled in Old Testament times in the nation of Israel. He had dwelled in the tabernacle and then the temple. But that glory had long since departed in the exile of the Jewish people to Babylon. And in the Gospels, and John's opening remarks here in chapter 1, that glory returns in the most personal way that it can. In the God-man, Jesus Christ, who became human, who made his home among us, full of unfailing love and faithfulness. We have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Folks, there is no greater revelation of the character, nature, and the glory of God than through the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, what does he say later on in the Gospel of John? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And in these opening verses, John establishes some very important things that we need to know and we need to live into. Answers to very deeply important questions. Two questions that he really addresses and hammers on here is, Who is Jesus, and why did he come? So I want to treat that first question just very quickly here. Who is Jesus? John's simple answer in no time flat, and the main point of these first 18 verses of his gospel is that Jesus is God, born to deliver mankind from death 
and darkness. Make no mistake about it, guys. If your answer to the question, who is Jesus, is anything but Jesus is God, you are on the completely wrong track. In a small manger, actually in a dark cave in Bethlehem, the eternal Son of God became human, became a man, not dwelled in a man, not appeared like a man, not even just chose a man to be the Son of God. He took on flesh and he dwelled among us. And guys, we can hold on to the truth of the incarnation, incarnation even if we don't comprehend it. And I don't know anybody in their right mind, anybody who has any sort of humility about it and says, you know what, I can, can totally explain this incarnation thing to you step by step. It doesn't make sense at all. But even when we cannot comprehend it, we can hold on to it. In the incarnation, we can affirm that one, Jesus has always existed. This wasn't Jesus' entry into creation. He had always existed, was with God, and was God. And number two, that there was a definite point in history when God entered humanity as a tiny baby. And if you think about that for a moment, is, again, isn't that the craziest thing ever? God could choose a million and one ways to enter into history, and he does it through a baby. How risky, how vulnerable is that to come as a baby? And it's his entrance into the world that brings up the next question, and this is really the key question that I want to focus on for the rest of our time. Why in the world did Jesus come? Why in the world do we celebrate Christmas? Why in the world do we go to all this trouble to do everything to celebrate Christmas and to rejoice in that fact? And John answers this with two words that come up time and time again, not only in his gospel, but it comes up time and again in all of Scripture. Jesus came to bring two things, light and life. Here is the sobering truth, guys, and, and it, this is not like really a Merry Christmas kind of message because it's super sobering and it's super terrifying. Without Jesus, without him stepping into our situation, we are dead in our sin. No hope at all. We are separated from God and we are separated from his glory and there's nothing that we can possibly do about that. No amount of good behavior or good deeds or good works will happen to get us back to the Father. Guys, physical death is one thing, but it's only a shadow of a far more sobering reality, spiritual death and separation from God forever. And in that sin, we can never be with a holy and a righteous God. And that is why Jesus Came. That is why Jesus had to come to save us from ourselves. When Jesus came, he gave each of us in this room and in this world the opportunity to change our condition. But he also gave us an opportunity to change our future destination. Again, what does John tell us? Probably one of the most famous verses in the entire Bible in John 3.16. John tells us that God so loved the world that he sent his son. And when he does that in John 3, it's far from an endorsement of the world, but it's a testimony to the character and the nature of God. God is to be admired. God is to be marveled. This moment where God sends a little baby to the earth is to be marveled at, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. 
I would encourage you, go ahead and read like Romans chapter 1 and 2 and 3. This world is sick and twisted. But I love the heading of my Bible in, in Romans chapter 3, what it says. It says, in all of that, in all of the darkness, in all of the stumbling, in all of the rejection, in all of the ickiness and nastiness, it says in chapter 3 of Romans, at the heading of my Bible, that God remains faithful. Guys, the incarnation provides us with many things. When Jesus came, we got an advocate. When Jesus came, we were provided with the ultimate example for how we can and how we should live our lives. But above all else, in the incarnation, God provided the world a substitute. Guys, you cannot look at Bethlehem. You cannot look at the manger. You cannot look at the little tiny baby without seeing the cross. We should never think about the manger without our thoughts drifting to the cross. The incarnation is amazing precisely because of why God came. Why he became a man so he could die for our sins. That was his sole mission on this earth. And what God did was he set aside his glory and he became poor so that we could become rich beyond our wildest imagination. On her album, Live Under the Lights and Wires, singer-songwriter Sandra McCracken shares a story of two young boys in Missouri who spent their summer playing by some sandbag levees that had been held back, or that had held back the extreme flooding that had occurred over the past decade on the Mississippi River. And in a tragic twist, the two boys found themselves in some quicksand resulting from a breach in the levee. And when rescue workers finally found them and came to them, they found only the younger boy standing in the sand. Where's your brother? asked one of the rescuers. I'm standing on his shoulders, answered the young boy. The older brother had sacrificed his life to save his younger brother. And just as this young boy needed saving, we too were once drowning in our own sins. And it took... Jesus coming and saying, stand on my shoulders to rescue us and to pull us out of that mud and that muck and that sand. And guys, that is the excitement of Christmas. It's all about anticipation. Incarnation is about a long wait and the joy that comes with that moment when Jesus arrives on earth. But can we be really honest this morning? there really aren't many surprises or many anticipations in your daily routine. I mean, for the most part, everything is pretty predictable, isn't it? Everything's lined out and in a box. We know it's going to happen every single day, A, B, C, D, E, maybe F. But the incarnation is all about unpredictability. The incarnation is unpredictable by nature. It's unpredictable for Joseph and for Mary, two kids who weren't expecting a baby. It's unpredictable for the shepherds that we already read about. They're out in the field doing their thing. They do this night in and night out. Take care of the sheep. Feed the sheep. Make sure nobody gets the sheep. And the next day comes, and they go through their boring lives where nobody pays attention to them. They stink, and the sheep stink. And they go and do it again the next night and the next night. And it's also unpredictable, and I want to read a story of two people in the Gospel of Luke who are waiting in anticipation, who are longing for the day of the Messiah. And the first guy's name is Simeon. 
And his story starts in Luke chapter 2, verse 25. It says, at that time there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was a righteous and a devout, and he was, catch this, what's the phrase? Eagerly waiting. Not just like twiddling his thumbs, not just like, oh, hum, just another boring day. Eagerly waiting, expecting, anticipating for the Messiah to come and to rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him. And Simeon gets an opportunity to meet baby Jesus. And he knows in a moment that the promise that God has made to him has been fulfilled. And he says this, starting in verse 29. Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a what? A light to reveal God to the nations. And he is the glory of your people, Israel. And in the very same temple, on the very same day, there is a woman named Anna. And this is Anna's story. So she is a prophet, and she was also there in the temple. Verse 37 says she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but she stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. And she came along just happened to come along as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been, what's the, what's the phrase again? Waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. If there is one thing that I can encourage, guys, in this Christmas season and the next few weeks and days that we have before Christmas hits and the wrapping paper starts flying and we start stuffing ourselves beyond belief again, Here's my encouragement. Be surprised again. Be surprised continually with the wonder of Christ, the newborn baby, the sacrificial lamb, and the promise, guys, that he is coming again. Guys, that's what makes for an unforgettable Christmas. I want to end this morning by reading how the Bible ends, and it's fitting that the Bible would end in Revelation chapter 22 with these words, verses 20 and 21. He who is the faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's holy people. Let's pray.